Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Courtside Podcast, an NBA podcast. This episode is brought to you by YouTube channels Highwayman Temptation and Captain Barbo, who make content on YouTube weekly. And don't forget to subscribe to the channel. Welcome back, everybody. It is Monday, the day after Game 2 of the NBA Finals between the Golden State Warriors and the Boston Celtics as the Warriors blew them out of the building in the second half as they ended up going on the win 107-88, tying the series one apiece going into Boston for Game 3 later on this week on Wednesday. However, we'll go into the review of that game as well later on the podcast. What does Draymond Green mean so far in this series? And exactly, I mean... What's going on right now with the Portland Trailblazers? I heard there's a, you know, apparently the owner of Nike or something like that is trying to buy the team. Hopefully that might even mean that they might stick in Portland for a little longer. And as well, I mean, the officiating was a huge topic over the night on social media, either on Twitter, Instagram, what have you. So we're going to go straight into that as well at the end of the episode. And maybe, just maybe, a little bit of Morbius talk. I know everyone's been talking about Morbius recently over the memes, but let's just see exactly how the box office was talking about him on their re-release. However, we're going to go straight into this podcast right now as the Golden State Warriors winning at 107-88 to over the Boston Celtics in Game 2. Believe it or not, that wasn't the worst score in this game. I mean, the deficit got even all the way to, I believe, 31-33 to points as the Golden State Warriors blew them out in the second half. But looking at the beginning of this game in the first half, it was back and forth. I mean, from the first game and as well the first half, you can easily say that this series itself is very much even. I mean, both teams defensively, well-rounded. Offensively, you know, the Celtics are efficient, maybe 40% from the field, which is a lot to say and let alone to do as a team against this Golden State squad who has a lot of experience in the finals, in the playoffs, let alone with probably some of the best players there ever been on the face of the planet. However, if the Boston Celtics are able to be this efficient, then they keep the game close as they did in that first quarter as Golden State was leading 31-30 to after one quarter. And as I said before, really even matchup, especially going into the second quarter. However, the turnovers themselves of the Boston Celtics, that they were just handing them out. And a lot of it even came from, I mean, Marcus Smart trying to like th- thread the needle for a couple of passes, and it just went straight to the cameraman on the side of the court. I mean, he was just making horrible reads. And Jason Tatum looked like every single time he was trying to drive in, he was trying to draw a foul. He wasn't even looking to even continue the basket. So he kept on throwing his hands up, losing the ball, and Golden State kept on taking control of it. And of course, the bad passes kept Golden State in this game leading. And as well, the defense for both sides, making it a low-scoring game, especially in that second quarter, as Golden State again, 21 over the 20 of the Boston Celtics in that quarter as they lead 52-50 to going into halftime. And everyone thought from this one that the Celtics, I mean, I don't know what it is, especially me just watching on TV on my couch. I'm just thinking to myself, man, Celtics can't buy a basket. They're probably shooting below 30-something percent from the field overall, and specifically two-pointers. I mean, I don't think they're going to keep up in this third-quarter push that the Golden State Warriors are known for. And lo and behold, that was what actually happened. Stephen Curry, Jordan Poole, Klay Thompson, somehow, some way. Looney got involved, and they ended up blowing out this Celtic team who couldn't buy a basket. And I believe there was even a moment at one time, when going back again to the two-pointers, there was a moment in time where the Boston Celtics were shooting below 25% from 
two-pointers. Basically, everything that was inside the three-point line was not going in. And historically, if that kept it up, and if it was going to be like that to the end of the game, they probably would have had that record of the worst shooting night for NBA Finals at all time, even past the time before the three-point basket was even considered a thing, which is insane to think, especially in 2022 with a lot of these teams who are shooting majority of their shots past the perimeter. A lot of it's been more effective now. But, I mean, the Celtics were just getting locked up. They were just getting locked up, and whenever they had open shots, they were missing everything in the back of the basket. And the worst thing, part about it, for at least the Celtics side of things, is that they kept on trying to rush it. Whenever Golden State, and this is on rare occasions, especially in that third quarter, Whenever Golden State missed the basket, you had guys like, let's see, Jason Tatum, Marcus Smart, I mean, even Al Horford pushing the ball down and just rushing the pace on offense. And you have like situation where it's two on four or, or one on two and the Celtics being misadvantaged, of course, as this one guy is just taking down the ball on a fast break, even though in reality, just slow down the pace. I mean, they couldn't get themselves a basket. They couldn't even get themselves a play to get on. So the Golden State Warriors taking advantage of that immediately went off and just blew them out. At one point, it was 33 lead, 31 point lead. And the craziest thing of, of all, I mean, Jordan Poole was just phenomenal in that third quarter. Yeah, sure. Maybe Stephen Curry got them kind of started with a uh, 34 foot shot and then a 29 foot shot and so forth but at the same time Jordan Poole was going off attacking the basket and then of course his shooting was phenomenal and especially at the end of that third quarter the icing on the cake which you would probably say ended the game and put the Celtics to bed early Jordan Poole as the buzzer beater is going to sound off as you can possibly think man no way that it gets worse than this for the Boston Celtics Jordan Poole knocks down a 39 foot shot near the near the half line I mean, it just goes right in, switch, the entire crowd, electric. And every single time there's a three in that building, it's like the roof is about to explode. And yeah, sure, it's not Oracle and the sound barrier and all that stuff. But, I mean, the Chase Chase Center, is it rocks. It is insane, especially during these playoffs. It is a rocking building. It absolutely gets like a real ruckus of a crowd whenever the team goes off. And probably for the first time I've seen in these playoffs, Home court advantage, specifically with the crowd, definitely going towards Golden State in this series because, man, I mean, they're going one-on-one to Boston, but, I mean, whenever Curry goes off, I don't think that crowd's going to let up. I don't think that crowd's going to let them lose at all. So, again, Golden State going off, going to the fourth quarter. Game's basically over. You're down 30. So, with about, what, 10 minutes? Nine minutes remaining in the game. They let the B group of the Celtics get on the court. Then out of nowhere, the Celtics let their C group get on the court. And then their D group get on the court. And it's like they just decided to bench everybody that was starting in that game. Don't even touch the floor that fourth quarter. Besides Grant Williams. Then Derek White's on there for a couple of minutes. They take him off. And the Celtics somehow, someway, bring it down to a 19-point deficit. However, again, losing it a blowout fashion, 107 to 88 against the Golden State Warriors. And now we look at the box scores of this one. If you recall game one, as we look at the Boston Celtics first here, four guys were phenomenal overall. And that was specifically 
Smart, Horford, White, and Brown. I'm going to put you the stats right now. Horford didn't even get incorporated in this game, despite playing about 27 to 28 minutes in this one. Eight rebounds, nice, but two points. One and four from the field. And he didn't even take a single shot past the perimeter. So it wasn't incorporated in this one. Jalen Brown, 17 points, and he did the best he can, but still 29.4% overall from the field shooting. It was 5 and 17. Marcus Smart, 1 and 6. Not even getting close to 20% of his shots in. And I, I mean, as I said before, Al Horford was struggling, barely got incorporated in the game. Derek White, I mean, if you told me that Derek White was having more of an impact than Marcus Smart was a week or two ago, I would have called you crazy. But that's what it seems like in this game as well. He was 4-13 overall from the field. However, 12 points. He is only the third Celtic in this game to get double digits. As Jason Tatum, from a 13-point performance and a horrible shooting performance in that first game, he ends up getting with 28 points here. 28 points. He shot 42.1% overall from the field. Most impressive, he was 6-9 from 3. But at the same time, I mean, again... He was throwing the ball away. He was get, causing a lot of turnovers. Unnecessary turnovers. Just trying to draw a foul. In his overall performance. And at least a, I, I believe this stat is efficiency. He was minus 36. Which is like. I mean how do you score 28 points. And say that you had one of the worst games. In your playoff history career. Right. Only about 5 years in the NBA. Yeah sure. But minus 36 in production. Scored 28 in this one. What happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened again. Just trying to draw those fouls, man. I mean, Tatum, four turnovers alone to his name in game two. And a lot of those was just because he was throwing up his hands and he got fouled. And that will also go into the officiating, which I'll talk about later. But, I mean, the Celtics right now, they're going into Boston for game three. One apiece with the Golden State Warriors, which is probably the most ideal and I don't know if everybody had that on their bingo list, but most likely was going to happen regardless, either way of what how these games turned out. But man, I mean, Golden State was not at all physical in that first game. In the second game, I mean, they were playing with desperation. As Stephen Curry said to the media, they played with more of a desire. Like, if they were the desperate team. And now we look at Golden State. I mean... Again, playing like the desperate team. They played like their playoff lines were on the line. Stephen Curry in this one with 32 minutes and 11 seconds. 29 points on that. And the 29 points coming off of 42.9% from field goal and 41.7% from three. And at a point in the game, he was 2-8. and eight. I believe in the first half or something like that or going into the third quarter. He was 2-8 and eight. everyone's thinking to himself like, oh, Curry's not going to get back in this game. I don't think... If Golden State can't get back, then Curry can't get back. And who knows? Curry shut all those people up in that third quarter, knocking down ridiculous shots away from like 35, from 30-plus feet away. And let me tell you, this is just another day for Curry. Same thing with the Boston Celtics going against Giannis Antetokounmpo. Same thing with the Boston Celtics going against Jimmy Butler and the Miami Heat. The Boston Celtics, they cannot figure out a way to guard Curry. And it's insane. And Despite the fact that I mentioned those two other guys that the Celtics played, Curry is just a little bit different. There's just a feeling about him where, like, you see what the production is on him, but you just know it's going to end differently, right? I mean, Curry doesn't get less than 
10 points a game, let alone less than 20 points a game. A bad game for Stephen Curry is at least 20 to 22 points, right? Maybe even get a couple assists there, right? Stephen Curry in this one, 29 points, 6 rebounds, 4 assists, and 3 steals. 3 steals. And you could probably even say, because he did miss a couple of free throws here and there. I mean, you could probably say this wasn't even his best game. Not even on his best days. He's getting close to 30. So Stephen Curry in this one, still same production as game one. However, the team decided to pick up with him as well. Andrew Wiggins, 11 points. Klay Thompson, who I just don't know where he's at right now. He had a pretty poor night shooting. Only had 11 points in this one with 30 minutes of play. And shot 419 over from the field, let alone 1 and 8 from 3. He's not the Klay Thompson of 2016 anymore. I understand that. However, Klay Thompson has definitely got to knock down some shots. Uh, Looney, again, I thought that he was a huge piece of this Warriors win as, you know, Kerr was getting double teamed off of the screens. He would kept on driving inside. Robert Williams or Al Horford would come up to pick up on him as he drives in. And he just dish pass, bounce pass, boop, right there into the paint for Looney to get easy too. And he was a huge piece of that. From that as well, not even that, seven rebounds in this one. And mind you, the offensive rebounds overall for the Warriors, I mean, six offensive rebounds. And every single time they got an offensive rebound, I felt that they were putting it back in. So Looney was a huge help in this one. The bigs were actually a much bigger story than I thought they would be in this game too for the Golden State Warriors, including, of course, not only Moody, but Draymond Green, the former defensive player of the year and the multiple all-star caliber type of player and Draymond Green showed out in that one. He was aggressive, got under everybody's skin. I mean, yeah, sure, played about 35 minutes with nine points, seven assists, great stat, was two and three from overall from the field, so great production. But the real thing that brought everyone's attention to was just his intensity. I mean, it was like seeing Draymond back before 2019, where he got under everyone's skin, where he was literally a lockup defender, and he didn't care who the hell was talking about him, who asked. There was even one play in the beginning of the game, I think it was like the first possession for the Boston Celtics, where Draymond Green, guarding Al Horford, Al comes around to swing the ball across his hip. I mean, Draymond just grabbed right at it, causing a jump ball right there and then. That is phenomenal defense. And I, to be honest, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. But like on the get-go, like as quick as a snap, he got it right there. Just grabbed for a jump ball. And it looked like the Celtics were suffocating there. And then they ended up, of course, choking on their own skin going to the second half. But Draymond Green, a huge part of that. And speaking of skin, getting under the skin of the Celtics as well. I mean, we saw Draymond Green in the beginning of the game try to go into Jason Tatum, and Jason Tatum, I mean, JT is one of those guys I've seen so far in his career where, you know, you can talk crap to him, but he's not really going to, I mean, he's not going to really react, you know what I mean, he's not like going to talk back, he's going to ignore you and get back to his game, he went to Jalen Brown, actually, and I thought, for a guy like Jalen Brown, this is the first time I've seen JB probably frustrated enough to, you know, talk back to somebody, even almost getting a technical foul there, and then after that, it's like he goes, Straight to Grant Williams, where you have to say, I mean, Grant Williams and Draymond Green, what a matchup. <laughs> you know what I mean? What a matchup. One of the two most vocal guys when they come to be frustrating 
coming at each other. And, you know, there was even one part where they had, you know, Draymond Green calling Grant Williams a bozo. And then Grant just going right at him physically. And, I mean, the officiating itself looked like to be majority of Warriors way. Not saying anything where it kind of, you know, decided the game. Because, you know, do not doubt it. The Golden State Warriors kicked Boston out of their seats and onto the buses going back to Boston. There's no doubt in my mind that they got blown out due to the Warriors' performance in this one defensively and, of course, the third quarter. But at the same time, it's like the officiating just let the game go. You know, a couple of calls, yeah, sure, maybe they're Warriors kind of favorite at it, especially the uh, the Gary Payton one I thought was kind of ridiculous because if you look at the replay, it's like Jalen Brown didn't foul him at all when Gary Payton was driving in on a fast break and he kind of fell to the ground and missed a layup. He wasn't even touched. Then there's one where Draymond Green is just like straight up tackling, I believe Marcus Smart or Grant Williams, I don't remember at the time, but yeah, he was absolutely just tackling guys and they would call it against Boston for some reason. And it was kind of like, I mean, are you going to review this? And speaking of review, they actually reviewed the technicals that could have been issued to Jalen Brown and Draymond Green, who could have been kicked out of the game because he did have a technical issued before the, the inflict. And it was, uh, I believe it was Jalen Brown on the right wing taking a deep three. He gets fouled by Draymond Green. And then Draymond, of course, landing on top of Jalen Brown, had his foot on Brown's shoulder and Brown kind of like waved it off like you know get off me and whatnot and Draymond Green was not having any of it and they were both poking at each other and then JB got straight into his face and Green didn't like that at all and they had to be separated at the end and I mean it's almost insane because you think to yourself like I mean that should be a double technical I mean you know what I mean just double T get on with the play but it's I mean it's like you know I think it was on ESPN I forgot the uh the official's name but the official that kind of helps out with ESPN's calls whenever they try to understand something that's going on with the officiating in an NBA game I mean he says that apparently in the NBA that they put in consideration for the fact that Draymond Green already has a technical and that if this second technical is even worth anything of kicking him out I thought that was ridiculous I believe specifically that if you get another technical it should be based on the situation of the technical. Not if you have four fouls. Not if you already have a technical. Just then and there, what did you do? Was it worth it? Was it excessive? If so, you call the technical. That is plain and simple. You don't just consider the motion of the game. If that was the case, I mean, let's say that LeBron James has five fouls. It was about five minutes remaining in a close game. And LeBron obviously fouls somebody. I mean, are you going to just you know, not look at it? Are you just going to ignore it? You know, just like look behind the wall and put a curtain over it. I mean, you got to call the foul. And the same thing has to go with these technicals. If Draymond Green straight up went to argue, poke at Jalen Brown, and honestly, throughout the entire game, I thought there was like maybe four times you could have got a technical foul. I mean, you got to call the foul. Call the technical foul. If it's the second one, then so be it. He gets thrown out. It makes no sense. It really does. I mean... I believe in the beginning of the Memphis Grizzlies series with Golden State in round two, they threw Draymond right under the bus in the first quarter of, I believe it was game two. I forgot which one, but it was something where it was like borderline, you know, 
it was a dirty play borderline where like you didn't really need, even need to call that as a technical, but they threw him out either way. So what's the difference now with this final series? Is it because you're in the finals? Is it because of TV ratings? We'll never know. We'll never know if these uh, officials are biased. And maybe I'm thinking about it too much. Like most NBA fans, I'm always thinking that the officials might do some sort of outcome in the game. Like, oh, Scott Foster's in. That's going to be it's going to be less of a physical game or like, oh, Tony Brothers is in. And, you know, they're not going to look at calls a lot or, you know what I mean? I, I mean, it, maybe we think about it as basketball fans at the officiating too much. I mean, because they don't have this issue in other places like NHL, they let them fight. Right. And then the NFL, you know, the only thing you really get is like holding calls on huge plays that could be backbreakers for teams. In the NBA, it's almost like the officiating is based on, how the game is played, what is the game, how important is the game, and exactly for the players, it's going to be based on, is the official going to allow me to be physical? Is the official going to allow me to do some things that I might not be able to do on other nights? And I felt like that's kind of where we are right now as NBA fans look at it. But either way, it is still 1-1 going to the Boston Garden for TD and... It's going to be a good series, though. I mean, game three and four, again, can go either other way. We can be going 2-2 going to game five. But as I said before on the last podcast, I can't imagine the series going to seven games. It has to end in a game six. Whoever wins two straight will win this series and probably win the NBA Finals this year. Because I just can't. I, I mean, I just can't. I just can't. I think both of these teams are too well-rounded to say that, you know, they lose at home, but Golden State already lost at home, you know, so what does that tell us? That probably means that one of the teams is going to have to win two straight. It might be the Boston Celtics winning two straight in game three and game four. Then again, if the Warriors take game three, I mean, shoot, they're probably not going to be losing game five, right? And then game six, Clay is always going to be a thing. I mean, Clay Thompson is a thing. In this series, I don't think that people look at him and yeah, sure, offensively, he was kind of, I mean, especially with a lot of the missed layups from the Golden State Warriors, which is bizarre to see in this game, even though the fact that they won by 19, but still Clay Thompson, he might not be a factor in this series as much as we thought. Jordan Poole might even have a better, I mean, offensive impact to this game. For the Golden State Warriors going to game three than Clay Thompson. Clay Thompson might not even hear about him until game six. So this is going to be a really interesting series going back to Boston. And the three keys I find right now in that series going into Boston, one-on-one apiece. I mean, again, the defense is going to be huge. We're going to have a couple of guys on the Boston Celtics who are going to be efficient. But at the same time, Golden State is going to get their second half points. And Stephen Curry is going to get his points as well. But I think the biggest thing going into Boston right now what does the crowd look like? Does the crowd standing on their feet ride with the Celtics? Does Jason Tatum finally get into the game and is actually putting up better production than he usually does? And does Al Horford even continue? Because Al Horford probably played his best game in game one with 26 points in that one. Do they even incorporate Al Horford more? Let alone, does Al Horford and Robert Williams being on the same lineup together help out the Celtics. They might have to switch it up a little bit. And Ime, Coach Adoka, is, I mean, he's well known for switching up lineups. I mean, hell, we might even see Derek White start next game. No doubt about it. 
So right now, the Celtics and the Golden State Warriors won a piece into Game 3 of the series as it goes to TD Garden in Boston. And now we go to the later parts of this episode and the big story that's going out west for the Portland Trailblazers. And the Nike founder, if you didn't know, the Nike founder, Phil Knight, and a couple of guys out there from the Los Angeles uh, I believe is a part-time owner for the Los Angeles Dodgers, uh, Alan Somolinsky, has basically put down a written offer of $2 billion to purchase the Portland Trailblazers. And, you know, right after this, and it kind of hit, like, you know, breaking news, of course, all over Twitter. I mean, right after this, the Portland Trailblazers say that the team is not for sale. But at the same time, I mean, the front office of Portland is switching. Right, we got more GMs coming in. You know, they got rid of CJ McCollum. It looks like a rebuild is imminent right now for them. But I mean, if they get Knight as the owner of this team, right, even partial owner, that just guarantees that the Portland Trailblazers are going to be staying in Portland. That just means that it's a guarantee they're not moving. The team is in great hands, and not even that, the owner of Nike especially in the state of Washington. What else can you ask for? I mean, that's literally one of the things that you have to say that, hey, this guy knows the area. This guy knows how to run a successful franchise, at least brand-wise and whatnot. I can't really, I mean, I'm not a huge business guru. But Knight will most likely be the type of owner where you say, hey, we might get a new stadium. We might bring in more pieces. We might have more of an innovative outlook. And the jerseys might look a lot whole better. Oh, they might look better with Nike gear. But again, you know, team's not up for offer according to the Portland Trailblazers. However, Phil Knight is going to be making that offer for $2 billion with that part-time owner of the Dodgers. And I mean, I say go for it. Go for it. A lot of these owners are trying to, you know, do some innovative stuff, especially out west. And speaking of which, the Los Angeles Clippers owners, uh, Bomber, I mean, he, you know, he's trying to build a new stadium in Los Angeles for the Clippers. And there is one thing that I've heard, or at least overheard, is that he's trying to uh, do something for the first time ever done for an NBA court, for an NBA arena that I think could possibly be the new wave. Because if you aren't familiar with the Seattle Seahawks and their end zone type of uh, setup for the fans, it's kind of like this huge wall of rows of seats much close to the field where it's just no flat screen no nothing and it's just a wall there that kind of echoes the sound all across the stadium and it, much, it does much better for at least a sound wise for the fans to be the real 12th man on the field let me tell you i mean balmer he saw that and he wants to put that exactly into an nba and arena the los angeles clippers owner balmer is trying to do the same similar way from at least what i've heard that he's trying to put with his new stadium for the Clippers in Los Angeles, this wall where he takes out a majority, at least on the baseline side of the stadium, the majority of the suites, and replace it with just this wall of seats to make a huge sound effect. And yeah, sure, you know, you know, getting rid of the suites is obviously going to be financially hitting hard on him if he wants to do that with his new arena. But at the same time, I mean, Balmer... I mean, one of the main guys at, what was it, Microsoft, Google, whatever like that. Either way, he's a savvy guy that has been able to live out his life and has enough money. And I mean enough money to be comfortable. 
despite whether he loses or wins any type of profits out of this whole entire ordeal with this stadium. So maybe he's the first guy to do it for the NBA. Maybe we might be seeing more things if there's, you know, hopefully an expansion team or maybe it's just a renovative, you know, outlook at arenas that teams want to be moving in and even do their own arenas to renovate. But I mean, hey, I mean, I give it all to it. I love more owner talk. I think that more owner talk in the NBA should be like a vocal point because, I mean, the owners do everything. No doubt in my mind about that. And plus, I mean, we're always looking for new owners for expansion teams in the NBA. So why not? I like this little hour of owner talk. But Bomber could be possibly doing that. And then, of course, to end it all off, Phil Knight could be buying the Portland Trailblazers. No offer is really accepted at all. But then again, it's a nice thought. It's a nice thought. And to end this episode, again, you know, might do this a little bit more. I know I haven't done a part of the episode where I ended off with something that's outside of basketball. But again, got to talk about Morbius. One of the best movies all time. Apparently, all the memes on social media renovated this Sony film to be, you know, peaked out again and say, hey, maybe we should re-release it in theaters. And they did. And the day that they did it, and this is a crazy stat, they only made $85,000 in profit for that release. And it was so funny to think about because there was a stat where somebody did the math. If you had looked at all the theaters that did it, we're talking about 82 people watching that movie per theater around the country. 82 people per theater around the country. 82 people is barely even enough to even, you know, book an entire theater room in some places for the movies. I mean, that's insane. I mean, how do you bomb so bad, especially with the success that you're finding out of it? I mean, this entire Morbius joke has been going on for too long. But I find it so funny that a company like Sony thought, hey, you know, I don't know if this is a joke. Maybe people actually did like the movie. <laughs> maybe this is maybe maybe Leno is actually a good actor. Who knows? Maybe he deserves another chance. And they were so wrong about that. So wrong about that. But I'm going to end the episode there. Uh, thank you again for joining in for the Courtside Podcast. Stay tuned for Friday, and I'll be making another episode. We'll probably be going over Game 3 as that comes by on Wednesday later on this week. And also, a lot of talks about extending the NBA season. A lot of talks about, about limiting some of the games of the NBA. and we're going to go straight into those discussions as well in the next episode, but please stick around for Friday and I'll see you guys there.